Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by the other guy. Yep, I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. And uh, in the third chair today, yes, we've got the third chair filled. It's Louis Dizon. Hi, Louis. How you doing? Hello, I'm doing all right. All right. Um, great. And uh, for the audience who may not be familiar with who Louis Dizon is, guess what? <laughs> I'm not either. We'll find out together. Hey, Dale, take over. Sure. So, so yeah, I, I invited Louis uh, to come on. He was kind enough to um, come on and share his expertise with us on, on a few topics that we'll be getting into. Um, I like Louis. Louis was my own personal uh, adult Bible uh, Sunday school teacher. Um, so I, I know that he's got a lot of good things to contribute. Um, but rather than having me explain who he is, uh, why don't we first just turn it over to, to Louis himself and let, you know, give, give us sort of an introduction as to who you are and, uh, you know, take some time to plug any blogs or articles or, or debates, anything that you'd like. Uh, yeah. By, by the way, before you get started, Louis, I, I have a, a request as you recap yourself. I know that you've gone through a lot of transition. I have also gone through a lot of transition. But yeah. if if in your uh, un, unwinding of your personal journey, uh, I would appreciate it if you would talk about some of those major transitions that you've gone through, how how you've evolved from where you started to where you are. Oh, sure. I'll, I'll give you like the Sparknotes version of what happened over the course of my life. So basically, as um, as uh, uh, he told Dale told you, he was, uh, you know, we went to the same church together for a few years. I was uh, uh, I was teaching Sunday school there, both the young adults and the adult classes. Um, I'm not there anymore funny enough and the reason why is because i switched my denominational affiliations um recently like around six months ago i switched from protestantism to catholicism now to someone who is not a christian you'd probably think big deal you went from one kind of christian to another but uh, let me tell you that among christians like within our own ranks we do care a lot about those denominational differences so much so that uh, some groups of christians will not even consider other groups of christians as fellow christians um now funny enough i was born and raised catholic i grew up in the philippines i was baptized and confirmed catholic there um it's the majority religion there so i took it for it was easy to take it for granted it's not like here in canada where you have this hodgepodge of different um, religious viewpoints represented all over the place. There, you know, pretty much everyone believed the same thing. Like, there, there were p- other religions represented, but they were minorities. Uh, around the time I was 16 years old, I started, um, you know, asking myself, you know, there's so many viewpoints out there. Like, just because I grew up with something doesn't mean I should... Uh, believe it like I should really take the time to ensure that um, what I believe is the right thing so I hit the reset button on my worldview and actually for uh, a brief moment of my life like no more than three or four months or so I was actually an agnostic atheist I read a bunch of you know Christopher Hitchens Richard Dawkins 
I watched a lot of their documentaries on YouTube. I was 16 years old at this time, by the way. This was also my first real exposure to Christian apologetics. And I basically, after the debating the issues back and forth, I eventually came to the conclusion that Christianity is true. But at this time, I was also being exposed to evangelical Protestantism. And one of the main people that was uh, witnessing to me at this time was my aunt, who is an evangelical Baptist, and to this day uh, is one of the closest people to me. And through her influence, among other things, I spent the next 11 years of my life as an evangelical Protestant. I got involved in the same Baptist church that Dale goes to, Midland Park Baptist Church, and I was there for like a good eight and a half years of my life. And I was very much keen on continuing my study of different viewpoints. So I did a, a program like I'm, I did it. I studied theology, German masters. And then for my undergrad, I was in a program in the University of Toronto called, called Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations. Um, and the reason why I did that is because one of my major interests is comparing Christianity with the other two Abrahamic religions, so Judaism and Islam. And that has been one of my major areas of focus, so much so that right now that is what I am doing for my doctoral studies. So for my doctoral program, I'm doing comparative religions, but focusing on the three Abrahamic faiths. Hmm. So within the past couple of years, I... Um, I found myself questioning, um, you know, whether I made the right choice in accepting evangelicalism over against the Catholicism that I grew up with. And uh, this was spurred in part by the fact that a lot of my friends who I knew were making the same transition, a lot of them were um, evangelicals who were converting to Catholicism. And that sort of you know, got me debating Catholic versus Protestant issues. And um, uh, eventually, after an extended <clears throat> period of time, like a couple of years of, you know, of really concentrated debating, where I tried to leave no stone unturned, I eventually came to the conclusion that they just had the better um, explanation for how things are. Um, long story short, I figured if you're really going to follow Jesus, you really should um, follow the form of Christianity that he um, instituted and which, you know, pretty much every Christian took for granted until the last 500 years or so. Now, that's an oversimplification. Of course, there were differences even before that. But um, the sorts of options that uh, were being presented as the main alternatives, i.e., evangelical Protestantism, particularly in its Calvinistic uh, expressions, are fairly new to the scene. They've only been around for the past 500 years or so. And um, in Christianity, um, these, you know, novelties and innovations are quite suspect because they're seen as departures from the original form of the faith. Does that uh, answer your question about, you know, what my journey was like? 
Yeah, very good, actually. Um, and just before we start getting into the questions, though, just very briefly for my own interest, did, did you, so I understand your, your journey with Catholic Catholicism versus Protestantism. Did you also look at Eastern Orthodox or, or other versions of Christianity as well? Believe, believe it or not, this is the most common question that I've gotten uh, when I became Catholic, it's like, why didn't you go Eastern Orthodox instead? Uh, the main answer that I could give to that is, you know, basically, it's a question of authority. Like, all of, you could argue that all of the differences between Christian groups uh, become a question of authority. So Protestants have sola scriptura. Catholics and Orthodox both believe in scripture plus tradition. But the way to hash it out is, a bit different because um, tradition in the Catholic context is understood in light of the magisterium of the church, whereas in Eastern Orthodoxy, um, tradition is more, how do you say, nebulous. There isn't like one body that tells you what is and isn't the tradition of the church. Mm -hmm. And what happens in Orthodoxy is that, um, you know, you basically end up with the same problem as in Protestantism, where all of the bishops and autocephalous churches just end up um, disagreeing with each other over what constitutes like the authentic uh, expression of the faith. So let me, um, let me ask a follow-up real quick um, on something that you said earlier. I don't want it, I don't want it to be lost. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you said that if you were going to be a Christian, you wanted to... Uh, be a part of the form of Christianity that would have been um, most authentic or recognizable uh, by Jesus. And I, I wanted to follow up on that. So do you, do you believe that Jesus, if we were, if we were alive today, would look at the Catholic church and say, yeah, that's what I was going for. There's been some developments over the way, but I think the fundamental structure of it is what Jesus founded. Like the Catholic church, perspective, of course, is that in Matthew chapter 16, when um, Jesus tells Peter, you are uh, Peter, and upon this rock, I'll build my church, he intended the church to be, you know, founded on Peter as the rock with him as the head of the church. And that is the foundation for what we have today is the papacy. Gotcha. Okay, so, so yeah, and we do have um, a question coming up. So, we can sort of dive into more details on the Catholics versus Protestant Protestantism and that sort of thing. But before we before we get to that, I, I just want to sort of generalize it with our our first question and just sort of ask you, Lewis, um, what so why do you believe that um, you know that God exists in the first place and that Christianity, the Christian religion in whatever denomination or form, is true in the first place? Yeah. Now. Um... Let me go back to that um, part where I said that I was an agnostic for a relatively brief phase of my life. Like, um, I'm, it's not like other people who are unbelievers for uh, many, many years of their life before they finally end up uh, settling on Christianity, you know, like I think what Dale did. If I, For most of the time I've known Dale, he was an agnostic, right? Um, um. Yeah, well, actually, I was I was a general theist. I, like you, okay. I went through 
yeah, uh, I went through a period of about five to six months of agnosticism. So that that's interesting that you also had a period of months. But yeah, I was yeah. I was a general theist. Um, yeah. yeah. So at that, so this was uh, when I was sixteen. So you know, sixteen year olds, <laughs> uh, what do they know about life? <laughs> but anyway, um, I a lot of the main thing I focused on. Uh, I mean. There are various issues, but the one that to me was the most important was the question of whether or not the gospel accounts regarding the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus actually report true history. Like um, St. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity is you know, vindicated, and this is, becomes the most important thing ever. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything's pointless. Like, we might as well uh, close down every church and fire every pastor and just, oh, I don't know, convert to Buddhism or something. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Uh, so, so the resurrection. Um, yeah. And, um, I remember you, you once mentioned Messianic prophecies to me. In a, yes. So, so that's connected to it. So how do we... How do we um, verify that um, the events that are recorded in the New Testament actually happened? So there are many uh, lines of evidence that we can follow that lead there. there. The fulfillment of Messianic prophecy is one of the lines of evidence that uh, compelled me in that direction. Um, to this day, whenever I am uh, trying to convince a non-Christian to accept Christianity, whether that person is a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist. One of the things I like to do is I ask them to read Isaiah 53, but I won't tell them what uh, what chapter of the Bible that is. And then after they've read it, I ask them, who do you think it's referring to? And without, like, without fail, every single person that I've ever asked this will say, well, that sounds like Jesus. And then at which point I tell them, well, it's funny you should mention that because this was written 700 years before Jesus. Um, <clears throat> mm -hmm. So people intuitively know this. Um, and it shows by the fact that every, no matter what religious background um, the person I'm talking to uh, is from, they all have the same um, answer to this, that question. So that's that that encapsulates the messianic. Have uh, you ever asked aspect. a Jew that? Oh yes, I have. Okay, and, 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 they, the, and they say it sounds like Jesus, really? Yes, in fact, Isaiah fifty-three. I don't know if you know this, but Isaiah fifty-three is not uh, recited in the in the uh, Orthodox Jewish um, <clears throat> uh, scripture readings. So they have a set. They have set readings like. Uh, uh, a liturgical, like a lectionary, basically, where they will go through specific parts of the Bible in specific times of the year. And interestingly enough, Isaiah 53 is not there. Um, <clears throat> and um, which means that even if a certain Jew is, um, is regularly going to the synagogue and listening to all of the scripture that is recited there, unless they actively uh, went through this passage... Uh, they will, will likely not have encountered it. And funny enough, the, uh, there have been many stories of Jews converting to Christianity as a result of having read this passage and wrestling with its implications. 
But that sounds like a fantastic claim uh, that you're making. Because it seems like you're implying that Jews have a conspiracy to hide this passage from people because if they hear it, they would automatically jump to the conclusion I, I, that Jesus is I'm, Lord. Hey, I'm just telling you the facts. It is a fact that it's not part of their liturgical readings, and it's a fact that reading this passage has caused many Jews to convert to Christianity. Okay. I'll, I, will, I, will, I will let that sit there for now, but I, I must tell you that I um, am... Am somewhat incredulous about about that claim. That's that's a that's a huge conspiracy that seems like over all of this time would have been uncovered by now. So someone would have realized. Hey, wait a minute. Oh, there are like there are some <laughs> Jewish apologists who will try to uh, who are aware of the Im- impact of this verse and will try to um, diffuse it. Um, and um, I don't know. If you want, we can go through some of the arguments um, well, it, for and against messianic interpretation of this passage. Yeah, no, it, I don't think I don't think that will be necessary. If there's a resource, we might put it in the resource section. I'm just saying that the the claim. I've heard a lot of things claimed about messianic prophecy. I've I've spent way too much of my life studying messianic prophecy. But this and is, I think. So uh, me, me and David did do a, a four-part series on messianic prophecy. So we did, we did actually uh, go over some of the stuff that you're saying as well. Um, but yeah, so, sorry, David, finish your right. Finish no, your but th- this is the first time that I've heard someone claim that there was some type of conspiracy to keep this from Jews so that they wouldn't assume now, that it was now, Jesus. I didn't say there was a conspiracy. I just mentioned facts. So, like, I let that. I just mentioned this, and then I let. The people make what they will of it. If you infer conspiracy from that, well, that's not what I said. That is your inference based on what I said. So let the audience hear. I infer conspiracy with yeah. that audience. You can determine what um, you you hear from that. Also, the idea that, you know, you, you get people to read this passage and, you know, they say, well, who does that sound like to you? People have been hearing this passage in Christmas plays uh, and things like that since time immemorial, of course they connect it to Jesus. That does not mean that it obviously must sound like it's about Jesus. I've uh, used this on Muslim immigrants who do not have that kind of exposure. So that would falsify that claim. Okay. And just to, so, so I got that, but Easter's coming up here. So you, you also mentioned, uh, I think, the evidence for the resurrection as well. So, um, yeah, D- David, do you, do you have any pushback on the resurrection evidence that you'd like to discuss with Lewis at all? Uh, well, my question, I suppose, would be, what do you consider evidence? Uh, this is, uh, and I think that we probably have some questions about this later, but um, evidentialists like uh, Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona and, and Dale um, believe that there is external evidence, good external evidence, to come to, uh, to to prove the resurrection. Dale also sits on the other camp, though, where he would say there's good internal evidence, uh, things like um, the, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, properly basic belief to to believe uh, in the resurrection. How do you break down evidence? Is evidence for you external evidences or internal evidences or some combination uh, of both? Um, it's a combination of both. 
like um you know it's not a mere recitation of facts but at the same time it's not divorced from the facts you have to take the facts into consideration and if that feeling you get on the inside is not based on the nature of reality then all that is is you know a delusion and um I don't know what constitutes evidence. It's hard for me to get into this uh, and provide anything novel because I have listened to a couple of your past podcasts, especially the one with Lydia McGrew. And I think a lot of that same ground has already been covered there. Um, it, a lot of it is the same like sets of things that Dale and Lydia and uh, similar people have mentioned already in the past. Things like, you know... Um, a high level of historical knowledge on the part of the New Testament authors. There's the undesigned coincidences. There's the fact that um, all of the alternate explanations uh, of the evidence fail, whether you're talking about the Swoon theory or the, you know, the theory that Jesus' body was stolen or the Islamic substitution theory where someone else got uh, crucified instead of Jesus like I've heard all of the alternative explanations and to me all those alternative explanations are you know even more fantastic than the resurrection once you um, consider all of the facts okay gotcha. I I would I would question that all of the alternative explanations fail uh, I think that there are plenty of alternative explanations but i think that part of it part of it might be you you accept a certain part of the story as literal and um not not just literal but to some degree infallible and so the part of the story that you accept as infallible that means then that there are certain facts that you are taking on board almost a priori uh, so sure, it, you're going to be able to eliminate a lot of alternate explanations because they don't fit the facts that you've taken on board already. But I don't take on board the facts that you do, and I think that. Uh, well, what sort of facts are we talking about that you wouldn't uh, take on board? Well, I, I think I wouldn't take on board most of the story, uh, frankly. For one thing. Um, Jesus' disciples weren't around. Okay, uh, they were. They weren't um, there. Um, they they had fled the scene. Um, the empty tomb. I don't take that on board at all. I don't. I don't okay. see any reason to believe that there was ever an empty tomb. Um, okay. So, what do you think happened to Jesus' body then? I don't know. You don't know. No. So it might still be somewhere out there. Uh, at, after all this time, I doubt it. De decomposition would have uh, taken care of it. Oh, I don't know. We, we we have a pretty good track record of finding two thousand year old skeletons. Um, also, um, I it seems what this is one of the things that is incredible to me. It seems incredible to me that people <clears throat> just forgot where they buried Jesus. Like you think well, they but, just but who knew him in who a... knew where they buried Jesus? Who would have who would have well, no, the disciples weren't there. Uh, the people who buried Jesus. So so imagine this. Imagine the man in Pentecost rolls around and the disciples started proclaiming that Jesus rose again. Now let's say you're one of those people who um 
were who disbelieved in that story and you want to prove that these guys are just cuckoos what do you do well you would consult with the people who buried jesus and you would get them to uh dig up the body and present it to everyone okay, we don't know that jesus was even buried so that's okay, well, this, is, this is this is this is one of the well you see i I, I I worry about it when you say, well, what could have possibly happened if it wasn't buried? You don't even take on board the possibility that 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 story is not true. Uh, what happened to most people who are crucified is they were thrown in a pit. Um, uh, you know, they were they were left on the cross, eaten, and uh, you know the remains thrown in a pit, probably burned. I don't. There there would have been no elaborate burial for most people um, crucified. We actually do have skeletons of crucifixion victims, I'm, including, I'm not saying including that it, one where... I'm not saying it never happened. Yeah. I'm saying for most people, that's what would have happened. There would have been no burial in the first place. We take on board this special circumstance that, yeah, but Jesus was different and was buried because that's what the story demands that you believe. Okay, so... I don't believe the story. At least I don't have... I don't have to believe all of the details of the story, and I can therefore consider other possibilities. It seems like you cannot consider other possibilities because you you take certain facts as given and, and unquestionable. Yeah. Okay, and, and we'll let Lewis have the last the last word, and then I, I do have a quick okay. follow-up, and then yeah, we can meet. Well, well, okay. There are many reasons why I would accept it. First of all, um, you don't have to be a Christian to accept it. There are many secular scholars who. Um, except that there was an empty tomb, um, and you know, don't I, I'll try to remember who they are uh, later on because I don't have the list on me. Um, also, if um, the, that doesn't eliminate the question of you know why the disciples started claiming Jesus rose again, it does not um, you know explain why there were no. Um, basically counter testimonies from people saying that, no, 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 that is totally not what happened. You know, um, this is what we really did with Jesus um, because we do have testimonies of, you know, we do have stories from hostile um, sources. For example, the Talmud talks about uh, Jesus' death and the Gospel of Matthew talks about um you know, the claim that was floating around at the time that the disciples stole the body. Um, but all of these stories presuppose that there was an empty tomb. So all of that put together um, makes me conclude that there's no reason to doubt that there was an empty tomb. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and just one sort of quick follow-up, because I know, I know you mentioned you, you don't want to spend too much time on this, but just in terms of, since we're talking about uh, and we sort of hinted at the evidentialist approach. Um, there are others uh, that take a presuppositionalist approach. Um, would you mind just briefly sort of describing okay. what the, the difference is and, and what, which one you accept and why? Um, first of all, because I'm not Calvinist anymore, that's sort of a moot point because the debate is really only uh, really is really only uh, something that takes place within reform circles, mm -hmm. uh, but. Um, presuppositionalists are a subgroup within the Reformed Protestant camp that believe that, um, you know, speaking of evidences is problematic in and of itself because uh, people will inevitably um, basically interpret the evidence in light of the, 
in light of their own biases and worldviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, you need to have proper starting presuppositions to explain the evidence. Uh, to an extent, I would still accept some of that. Like, uh, it is true that what our starting uh, assumptions are uh, tend to dictate um, how we interpret evidence. Um, and I don't, and I don't think it is possible to be completely neutral on, you know, something as important as the nature of all of reality. Um, but I think uh, it does tend to be overblown at times. Um, they, um, I would probably have a bit of a higher view of the human capacity to reason its way into truth. Uh, although as a Christian, I would still believe that in the necessity of grace to aid the person in the search for truth gotcha perfect okay uh so so yeah i think we can move on to the second area of discussion and i know this is something that's important for for david this was one of the one of the reasons he left the faith so it'll be interesting to to get um lewis's take on this because this is one of his areas of expertise ancient near eastern cultures and languages and that sort of thing so 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 yeah when it comes to interpreting the old testament lewis um how do we how do we approach interpreting the old testament texts um you know and you can use the example of the the early chapters of genesis is that literal is it allegory yeah yeah go ahead um okay so there are many um, possible rabbit holes we can go with this one. Um, so let's start. With, let's start with the Genesis. Um, so first of all, uh, I am to an extent uncommitted on that issue. So I know maybe that sounds like a cop out to you, but um, I'm not committed to either a young Earth creationist or an old Earth creationist or a um, theistic evolutionist perspective. So, and I also hold the view that whichever one of those explanations you take, they're all equally compatible with uh, Christianity being true. Um, In fact, um, this is even more strongly emphasized in Catholicism than it is in evangelicalism. So before before we had this podcast, I linked Dale and... uh, David to a papal encyclical from 1950 called Humani Generis. So papal encyclicals, for those who don't know, are these uh, booklets or tracts that get written by the Pope and are are disseminated throughout the Church uh, to de- to discuss important issues that are raging at times. So 1950, Pope Pius XII felt the need to discuss the question of human origins because that was a raging issue at the time. Um, just just so the audience knows, uh, so, sorry to draw that source that Lewis is talking about, I have already included all, all of the sources Lewis wants, uh, including that one in the sources. So mm-hmm. yeah, ch- check it out to yeah. see what Lewis is talking about. Go ahead, Lewis, yeah. sorry. Yeah. So, so the... Uh, the cyclical says a few things. One is that it delimits the um, it limits the possible range of, of options that a an Orthodox Roman Catholic is allowed to take. Among other things, the cyclical affirms the historicity of Adam. So you know the idea that Adam is just a metaphorical uh, figure and not an actual human person is out by this encyclical. So a Catholic who knows his theology will affirm that there was a historical Adam. At the same time, 
the encyclical makes no uh, mention about how Adam came into being. So whether he was literally formed from dust out of the ground or whether Adam was the product of like a chain of human evolution is deliberately left unanswered and we are allowed to debate amongst ourselves which one is the more likely explanation. Um, the other thing that the encyclical does is say that, you know, we should not just take um, whatever the scientific consensus is as a fact because that can change, but we should uh, be actively involved in the debate and um, using our best evidence to arrive at the best explanation. And once we do that, we can figure out how that fits in with um, you know, our understanding of Genesis. So, so yeah, David, I think you, you heard Lewis's answer on the interpreting the Old Testament there. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you come back. Do, do you have any pushback or, or any probing questions or, or that sort of thing? Let's, let's open it up to a conversation now. Well, okay. I, uh, I will just say I wish I had more time to uh, get into a little bit more back, uh, back and forth. So for the, for the audience listening and we're unsatisfied with our last exchange just know that we're we're working with some time constraints and some audio issues and we're not able to push that quite as much but i'll i'll hang around in the comments maybe we can get lewis to come in the comments and we'll hash out some of this a little bit more uh as far as uh old testament interpretation uh i must say i am uh uh maybe unsurprisingly unconcerned about what the pope thinks uh about uh, Jewish scripture interpretation. Pope is not Jewish, <laughs> and um, it's it's Jewish scripture. Now, Lewis, I understand that you're a bit of a Jewish scholar, so rather than focusing on what the Pope thinks about um, uh, interpreting Genesis, what do you think about it uh, individually okay. and as a, as, a, as a scholar? Okay, so um, have you read John Walton's The Lost World of Genesis 1? No. No, okay. So it's a book that I would highly recommend because it's considered one of the um, um, best scholarly treatments on the subject um, that is at the same time uh, accessible to a lay audience. So John Walton makes the argument that if you interpret Genesis 1 in light of uh, its ancient Near Eastern background, uh, you would find that the... um, that the book is not so much concerned with the material origins of of the world. So it's not trying to give you an account of how things happen, like a blow-by-blow account. It's more of giving you a theological uh, explanation and affirming that uh, what whatever exists is actually you know created by God. He's, okay, this is John Walton speaking as a Jewish uh, expert here, yeah. or is, yeah. uh, he, he once is again, a... it, the only thing that matters when interpreting an ancient text is what the ancient writers and readers thought. Yeah. He is an Old Testament scholar and professor at Wheaton College. Okay. So he specializes in ancient Near Eastern backgrounds to the Old Testament. Um, so he is one of the people who's considered an expert in this field. Okay. Do, do you have any insight, though, from Jewish, not not merely scholars, uh, Christian scholars who study Judaism, but from Jews, rabbis, who um, on on how they read 
their own text. Yeah, you know what? Um, my experience with Jews on this issue is that they're generally unconcerned with the origins debate. Like, I don't see any uh, Jewish creationist organizations, for example. And the one, um, the the one or two books that I know off the top of my head that are written by Jews and concern the question of origins do affirm some form of theistic evolution. So. Okay. Um, the the feeling I get from my limited interaction with Jews on this particular issue is that um, they would accept the mainstream, prevailing mainstream view. Okay, and do you know that that's how it would have been read to a person reading it uh, two thousand, mm-hmm. three thousand years ago? Oh, uh, so I don't I don't know who the first readers of this would have been, but once again, we, the, how how would the original uh, mm. handlers of this text? thought of it um the, we do have some early rabbinic and you know tanaitic um writings that are sort of like expansions of genesis it's like they will recapitulate the story but they'll add extra details to it and mm-hmm. the extra details that they add in uh give us an idea of how they understood the text so you have for example the genesis rabbah or you have the targum of pseudo jonathan and um if you read um their you know, read what they say on the book of Genesis. Um, the feeling that uh, one gets from reading them is they are um, they were no more concerned with, you know, trying to give like a blow by blow account of how things happened than, you know, the okay. rest of the ancient. I will, I will accept that. Um, understand. I keep, I keep, probing though because i i really want to i think that that's the the heart of the matter it's not about what we think it means mm. it's about what they would have thought uh it meant and yeah. what the writers were trying to say sure. so it's it's not fair for us to read an ancient text with our eyes we, we have to kind oh, of read touched. it right we have to read it through their eyes and so that said it sounds like what you're affirming is that the original writers of the text, to the best of your opinion, uh, were not trying to write something literal, and they yeah. weren't meant to be taken literal. And yet we do yeah. take many things from the story literally. Like, for instance, there was a literal Adam and Eve. But I would say if if they weren't meant to be taken literally, how do, how do we then have the right to go in and say, well, but this part must be literal. That part, not so much. Uh, Well, there's a few ways I would go about it. One is comparing Genesis with the rest of the rest of the Bible. Um, Whenever Adam is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, it is taken for granted that he existed as a person. Um, Well, but so so did the original, so was the original creation as, as, a kind of a magical creation taken literally too. Well, no, again, that 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 that's the thing, right? Like, what which details exactly did the ancient uh, readers think were historical, and which ones did they take as you know poetic or allegorical? Um, well, okay. So it, Paul it, said God created man first, and then the woman, and this is part of what yeah. of, of Paul's idea of why the woman. Uh, was to be subordinate to the man. And so clearly uh, scholars as late as Paul were taking the story literally. They, t- they take the 
so Paul believed that Adam existed and that Adam sinned and that his sin brings about um, brings about the fall, which is again, uh, as I told you, that is within the range of things that are regarded as historical, in which, from a Catholic perspective, you sort of have to believe. Um, like that doesn't tell you. You know, what was the sequence of events preceding Adam that led to his coming about? Well, but I, I just quoted the Bible, not the Pope. Yeah, um, the, exactly. According to the That's Bible, the Paul says Adam was created first and then the woman. So he's taking exactly. this, he's taking the event of creation as told in Genesis as a literal thing. Are, are, no, you, dis, are you disagreeing with that? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay. I'm say that's but that's exactly the thing that I just said earlier that Paul takes the historicity of Adam for granted. And so does you know so does um you right, know Right, but it, but it's all, not just the historicity Jewish... of the man, it's it's the historicity of the of the sequence of creation events. He is taking the creation itself literally. Adam created first, the woman taken from him it's it's the way the story is written uh okay but right. he, he's not he's not talking that? about an evolutionary model here paul paul yeah. is not suggesting an evolutionary model no no the question is what happens before that like you know what was the sequence of events leading up to adam being created that's the part that is not addressed you see my point not really. How do you, how do you, maybe it would help if you tell me how you think Paul would have seen Adam coming first and then the Eve. What, what do you think Paul meant when he said that, if he wasn't in fact affirming the whole creation story? Yeah. I think that he at the very least believed that, you know, Adam, God created Adam and there was something special about Adam that set him apart from uh, the rest of the created order. Like, he he was made in God's image, whereas right. the rest of creation wasn't. Did, did Paul and believe that Eve was taken from Adam's rib? I would assume that he did. Okay, so that's. I mean, that's, they, that would be a literal reading, right? That, that would be a literal reading of the creation yeah. event. That's all I'm saying, is I'm that sure Paul read it literally. Okay, but does that say, for example, that the past? The... For example, I'm I'm so sorry. I I missed I missed that last bit. It got it got lost in the Skype. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Like you can uh, taking Paul's understanding of Genesis, we can infer from that that he believed that Adam and Eve were real and that they were specially created by God. Yes. That doesn't tell us, for example, how to understand the days of Genesis, whether they're twenty-four hour periods or not. Um, that doesn't tell us whether um, you know, evolution took place in general. I, I would I would um, somewhat agree with you if I were being hyper-technical uh, about it. And I, I, I see yeah, what I, you're trying to say, I think, but I don't understand how you get the right to separate it out that way since, we, since what Paul yeah. says does indicate that he takes a, a pretty fantastic part no, of the story as no. literal. And so why would we, why would we carve that out and say, well, he clearly took that literally, but maybe he didn't take the rest literally. I don't... Because, 
because he doesn't say anything about the rest. That's the point. They were not concerned with trying to figure out the details of the rest of the story. Like they don't want the like if you asked, you know, I mean, okay, this is starting to delve into speculation, but what Paul what might Paul have thought of the days of Genesis? Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, we don't know. He never said anything about it. Okay, but we don't have any reason to think that he thought of it as anything any less literal than the part of the story he quotes. That's yeah. that's all I'm saying. And and I, I I it seems to me the way it feels to me. And I don't mean this in a mean way, but it it, it kind of sounds especially from a Catholic background that what you're saying is well the part that we can prove to be, you know, historically and scientific wrong, specifically wrong. Let's set that aside. Obviously, the Bible was speaking figuratively about that. But the part that, um, you know, Paul affirms, uh, you know, with some detail, okay, well, I guess we have to say he meant that literally. But you're, you're trying to almost protect the story by taking out the parts of it that would be wrong if you, if you just read well, it in a natural reading. Well, first of all, I wouldn't say it's wrong, you know, because, because that's assuming that um, the – that – if a certain understanding of it is wrong, then the whole thing is wrong, which of course is a really naive way of reading it. Second, if we, you know, again, it's all about what is the ancient Near Eastern background to this text. So uh, how much do you know about other creation accounts in the ancient Near East? Like, do you know anything about the Enuma Elish, for example? So I know a little, but well, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to say a little <laughs> and, uh, okay. and emphasize so, a little. So, so, so the general consensus amongst Old Testament scholars, people who uh, who are aware of the ancient New Eastern background to Genesis, is that um, it was written at a time when there were many competing um, myths about the creation of the world. Agreed. And a lot of them involved the world being made out of chaos or a competition of many gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you read... Uh, the Enuma Elish. Uh, it's funny how it recounts the creation of the world. Like uh, Marduk kills Tiamat, and which is this weird dragon monster creature, and then um, basically dismembers Tiamat, and out of those dismembered body parts, all of the rest of creation is made. Now, the book of Genesis um, is aware of many of these stories um, and in a sense is trying to, you know, basically in, in one sense, it's a polemic against the polytheism of the surrounding culture that's saying, no, it's not cre- caused by the warfare of the gods. God created all of creation all by himself and he did not need pre-existing matter or, you know, the severed body parts of a dragon monster to do it. It's funny, though. It opens with the earth being uh, without form and void, darkness on the face of the deep. Let this be your last follow-up. I'll let Lewis give the the response, and then we'll move on, because I'm just trying to make sure we fit everything in before 12. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good good combo. So, so yeah, go go ahead, Lewis. You can answer the the last word there. Uh, I'm not entirely clear on how uh, the formless and void part um, has a bearing on what I just said. Because I think the, it fits there's, in a, there's, a, there's a theory, uh, a creation theory, that I'm surprised that that you wouldn't be familiar with it, that the creation that we read about is actually the second creation, that the, uh, that the first creation, we kind of picks up 
from the story of after things went chaotic. So, <laughs> oh yeah. So actually, I know what you're talking about. It's the gap theory that yes. was popular during the 19th century. So, so the gap theory basically posited that um, you know the story about Satan rebelling against God and then causing a bunch of angels to go with him. So apparently the 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 reason why that's, that's that the Christian second, version of the chaos theory. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so there is so there is that there was that theory flowing around Christian circles in the 19th and early 20th century that uh, the world became formless and void uh, because of the battle that raged between um, the angels and Satan. Um, now it's based on a specific question of. How do you interpret? Okay, this is where I start getting into the Hebrew. So in um, so in the Hebrew text of Genesis, it says Bereshit bara Elohim et Hashemayim et Haaretz, and then verse two it says Vehaaretz Haita Tohu Vehu Vehoshek Apanit Hom Barok Elohim Rachefet Apanit Hamayim. So in the um, beginning of verse two, you have what is called a vav, and the vav is what we would. Uh, you know, translate in English as the word end, mm -hmm. but the Vav can be understood as uh, something other than a, other than a, um, whatchamacallit, a consecutive. So people think that the Vav in the beginning of verse 2 indicates uh, that there was some sort of gap in between what was said in the beginning and what was said in the verse that comes after it. And that's where people try to insert the gap. Now, he, here's the thing about all these Hebrew things. It's like, it's not impossible. Okay, I'll grant that much. So it is, at the very least, it is possible to read the text that way. Mm -hmm. But just because it's possible to read the text that way doesn't mean it's plausible or that it's the best explanation. Because the Vav is actually one of the most common uh, particles in the Hebrew Bible. It is used all throughout it. And most of the time when the Vav is used, it is uh, being used to denote a, you know, just a straightforward sequence of events. This happened, and then on the heels of that, this happened. For the sake of time, I'm going to um, cut in, and I'm going to grant you all of that. Uh, sure. The Hebrew, it, reading it in Hebrew is no clearer than it is reading it in English. Um, so that's that's the bottom line there. Although it's very beautiful in Hebrew, uh, yeah. but it's but it's not any clearer. Well, I would push back against that by saying that certain ways of understanding it are simpler and more parsimonious than others. Like uh, reading the like trying to insert a va like a massive gap on the basis of a vav, while it is possible. Um, it is not at all parsimonious. Okay, and but there's... we also get massive gaps with the Yom, for instance, in uh, reading that same text. Uh, we, we get billions of years worth of massive gaps in a place where it looks like it's not, there are no gaps at all. So I don't, okay. I don't know that that follows. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. So okay. Um... All right, and, and Lewis, if, if you're enjoying this and want to go past 12, I, I can be less strict with the time the time thing. So it's whatever you want. You're, you're the guest kind of thing. So Sure. Uh, yeah, did you um, let's do as that? much as we can. Okay. Okay. So, um, okay. so the next question now, 
We're moving on to an area of Lewis's expertise, and it's exciting for me because we've never covered it on, on SNS um, before, but it's it's looking at Lewis's uh, uh, extremely, you know, his knowledge of Islam. He, he likes to interact with Muslim apologists. Uh, this is one of his uh, passions and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, just, just in the first place, why don't you give us sort of a, an introduction in in uh, as to your role with Islam and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it all started in grade 11 when these two Pakistani guys in my high school tried to convert me to Islam. Um, now, now, funny enough, um, I need to insert this here. They were not your standard Sunni Muslims. They are members of a minority sect called the Ahmadiyya. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have some controversial views that caused them to be shunned by the Muslim community at large as non-muslims but that's another thing um the the point is these guys they presented themselves to me as muslim they said they believed in the quran and they wanted to present to me evidence for why they believed um islam to be true their particular sect uh, has a centralized authority structure just like catholicism and their leader wrote this book purporting to disprove Christianity and, um, you know, demonstrate that Islam is true. So they gave me this book and I read it, you know, this was, I was 17 at the time I had, this was early on in my evangelical phase. And as I was reading it, uh, and I was reading the arguments they were trying to raise against Christianity, I was starting to think, you know, there's something about this that doesn't quite add up. So I'm going to research these claims and I'm going to, uh, see if I can present a rebuttal to it, and that's what I did. And I would go point by point, like the they would claim one thing, and then I would research that claim and find that it doesn't add up. And then that got me into um, studying Islam in more depth. So I listened to a lot of debates between Christians and Muslims on the internet. Um, I've you know, I've got a pretty good lay of the land when it comes to the Muslim debating scene. I've read the Quran. Uh, and I've also taken the time to learn Arabic um, because uh, Muslims will claim that you don't really understand the Quran unless you read the Quran in Arabic. So uh, me, you know, being the kind of person that I am, took that as a challenge and decided I would learn Arabic so I could be like, okay, you say that you have to read in the Arabic to make sense of it. Here, I'll read the Arabic with you. Um Plus, being able to quote the Quran in Arabic to a Muslim gives you a lot of street cred with them. <laughs> and um, it came to the point where, you know, I, I found that this is actually quite fascinating to me. So let me pursue this at an academic level. So I am doing Islamic studies in the Near and Middle Eastern program at U of T. Um, let me tell you something that it takes a certain level of seriousness and dedication to actually go into the history and theology of a religion that you don't actually believe in. Um, uh, but that goes to show you that, you know, I, I, I take my Muslim colleagues uh, very seriously. I take their religion seriously enough that, you know, I want to approach them on their own terms. I want to be able to understand the Muslim mindset and the Muslim scripture and to be able to speak to them on the basis of their own traditions and texts. Gotcha, perfect. And so, so I know this is um, this is not something that David's very knowledgeable about. And 
um, we are running up against time. So what I'm going to do is just sort of ask a follow-up and get your take uh, based on what I know is important for some of the skeptics because some of the skeptics have come to us and, oh, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all those Abrahamic faiths, they're all just the same. Uh, you know, it just depends where you're born and that sort of thing. Um, so, so yeah, wh why why don't you take some time? What What are some of the significant differences between Islam and Christianity? What, why should we care about Christianity? Okay. Yeah. Um, I can, okay, and um, I'll try to quote the relevant Quran verses wherever I can. So um, one of the main difference right off the bat is their view of God. So Muslims do not believe in the Trinity. They do not believe in the deity of Christ. They consider that to be idolatry and polytheism. Um, some of the more nuanced Muslims will try to uh, qualify that, saying that, you know, it's not quite on the level of like outright paganism you know there is it's it's sort of like a, a compromised monotheism but it's still bad mm. so the quran in many places uh will deny that um jesus is god or that um or that um you know god is three persons um gotcha. incidentally uh one of the um there is passage in the Quran that seems to imply that its author was not aware of what exactly constituted the Trinity. In Surah Al-Ma'idah, which is chapter 5, in Ayah 116, it says, um, And beware the day when Allah will say, O Jesus, son of Mary, did you say to my, the people, take me and my mother as deities besides Allah? He will say, Exalted are you. It was not for me to say that to which I have no right. Uh, if I had said it, you would have known it. You know what is within myself, and I do not know what is within yourself. Indeed, it is you who is the knower of the unseen. So right there in that one verse of the Quran, you have um, um, words attributed to Jesus where Jesus denies um, that he ever taught his divinity or that uh, he taught people to worship himself. Uh, some, in fact, when he says that I do not know what is in you, that's a direct, that directly contradicts what the New Testament says because in Matthew 11, Jesus says that no one knows the Father except himself. Um, but interestingly, the Quran also says here, did, uh, did you say that people take me and my mother as deities besides Allah? So the Quran does not give the impression that it knows what Christians actually believe about the Trinity. Like it seems to think that uh, that Mary is part of the Trinity in place of the Holy Spirit, um, which shows that um, the author of the Quran uh, will probably, in its in his interactions with Christians, misunderstood what his Christian interlocutors actually believed about the nature of God. Um, there's also the fact that the Quran denies that Jesus died on the cross. So in Surah, Surah Tanisa, which is number four, Ayah 157, it says, um, the Jews claim that we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. But they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it was made to appear so to them. So um, this is one of those unclear passages, and Muslims don't actually know what to do with it. 
if you look at the history of the interpretation of this passage, there's all sorts of explanations. But I'll give you the most common one. This is the one that you're most likely to encounter with the average uh, Muslim on the street. And the way they understand it is that Jesus was never put on the cross at all. That it looked like Jesus was put on the cross, but actually someone else was put on the cross and it was made to seem as though that person on the cross was Jesus. And there's a large body of Islamic literature dedicated to the question of who was it that was actually on the cross. Some people say it was Simon the Cyrene. They say that when he helped Jesus carry the cross, there was some confusion and people thought that he was Jesus. Some people think it was Judas. People think that, uh, sorry, Muslims think that um, uh, God cast a spell over Judas to make him look like Jesus so that he got caught and he was uh, mistaken for Jesus and got crucified in his place. That's the most common uh, understanding of this text that you're most likely to run into. Oh, now, um, do you want me again to the part where I deconstruct those explanations? Or do you just want me to describe what they believe? Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, well, it's, it's how, like, how long would it take you to deconstruct it? And stuff. Um, I'll give you the Sparknotes version. Okay. Uh, okay. The Sparknotes version is that um, the that that common account of how to interpret this verse implies that God deceived people into thinking that Jesus died on a cross when in fact he didn't. It implies that all of so so you know Islam makes a big deal out of condemning Christianity for all the ways that it goes astray. But yet, if you follow this line of logic, it would lead to the conclusion that God wanted people to think that this happened. God wanted people to think that Jesus died on a cross, even if he didn't. Um, and so then you can't blame people if they start believing that Jesus died on a cross. And also, that leaves you the question, well, what about the disciples of Jesus? Did God allow them to... Uh, um, you know, be fooled as well and to think that Jesus died on a cross? Or were they given some special knowledge so that they wouldn't be fooled? And if so, how come, um, how come that knowledge died down? Why didn't Jesus' disciples pass on the belief that Jesus didn't actually die on a cross? It merely appeared so. Um, You're aware that you, there's you a Christian also... tradition that says that Jesus didn't die on the cross. It's not just an Islam um, tradition. There's a... Well, actually... Are you talking about one of the Gnostic Gospels? Because yes. uh, So the specific detail of it actually is that um, most of these Gnostic Gospels believe in what is called docetism. Right. So docetism is the idea that Jesus didn't actually have a physical body and that uh, he only seemed to be a human being, but he was actually this ethereal spirit without an actual, um, without actual flesh or bones. And you can't crucify an ethereal spirit. So it seemed as though this Jesus was crucified according to this Gnostic account. But in fact, uh, all you crucified was a specter, a phantom. And because well, and he I, is not I, I think, but human. I think the one that I'm thinking about has someone else actually dying, a kind of a substitution, someone that was maybe a, a physical stand-in for Jesus, but not the okay. actual Jesus. And Jesus is, is kind of standing over it all laughing. It's it's a ridiculous story to be sure, but I think the original is a ridiculous story too. I'm just pointing out that there is not just Muslim tradition, but Christian tradition okay. that, that okay. goes down that road. 
Okay, well, that doesn't negate what I said, which is that if God wanted people to know that, okay, if if God condemns Christians for believing the crucifixion, then why did he make it appear that the crucifixion happened? Yeah, Oops, sorry. Yeah, that good. was that right. was an Arabic word that I clicked on, and right. it caused my computer to pronounce it. Yeah, that's okay. No. I, 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 just, just to be clear, I wasn't necessarily trying to contradict what you were saying. I was just, I was just adding to the fact that this is not a, this is not a Muslim-only idea, and it didn't even originate with them necessarily. It's, it, it's it older is, than them. You know what? That's actually quite possible because um, there is a large, there's also an increasing body of literature um, that suggests that many of the stories that are found in the Quran are originally derived from apocryphal Jewish and Christian traditions. Um, and actually, we do have confirmed instances of this. For example, um, the Quran talks about Jesus as a child fashioning birds out of clay and causing those clay birds to come to life. Mm -hmm. uh, that's in the Insuency Gospel of Thomas. So we know where that story came from. Uh, also, if I recall correctly, the Quranic story about Satan being asked to bow down to Adam, uh, which occurs once or twice in the Quran, originated from the Gospel of Bartholomew. So um, these parallels have been made. Um, I'm not entirely sure if the crucifixion one is one of those confirmed parallels, but that would be something. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, it, you know, I don't know whether it's directly from it any more than you could say the Jesus story is a direct uh, copy of Mithraism. But, it, you know, I, I think that the idea of a non-physical Jesus was around long before uh, well, the Muslims. And the idea that God, yeah. you know, maybe deceived yeah. people into thinking that Jesus was put on the cross once again that that began in christian traditions yeah well you know uh depends on how you want to how widely you want to use the term christian because whether or not gnostics actually count as christians is something of a debatable issue well we count catholics as christians oh yes we have like uh they they will know. I've had extended conversations with my former Baptist pastor on that particular yeah. issue, yeah. like who is and isn't within the fold of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping we could get to some of that, but I don't know if we will. But uh, go ahead. I'll so, give it back to Neil. Okay, so, so that's good. So, so I'm happy with the Islam. Uh, so, so let's move on to question four then. Um, and this, uh, I'm going to turn it over to David to ask his question, because I know this is a key. This is what a lot of the skeptics in the audience are waiting for. It's on the immorality or the ethics of the biblical God. So, so David, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What, what is your question that you want to interact with, with Lewis about God's morality? You know, I've been trying to find a way to shape this question so that it um, would be a little bit different than... Yeah. What people I, expect way, here. Just, by the way, so I have listened to a couple of previous podcasts, and the ones that I've listened to, I noticed that this one consistently comes up. And I just want to warn you that uh, I might not necessarily contribute anything original that hasn't already been said by Lydia, uh, for example. Um, so let let me let me just try to turn this question a little bit so that maybe we can get 
a more interesting take. Um, one of the everyone everyone knows pretty much the issue that comes up on the show. Uh, I might say, um, yeah, the the God of the Bible, especially the God of the Old Testament. Although I don't actually separate them out, I, I would just say the God of the Bible. Uh, mm. seems more like an evil god than a good god. Uh, here are some cases in point. And then there will be some type of objection to that or some type of rehabilitation of the story so that uh, the particular examples don't seem uh, as as bad as I'm making them out to be. So where I want to start here is, let's just assume things like slavery is bad. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's let's assume that things like war crimes are, is bad. Um, that sort of thing. the The question that I would have, in uh, in the objection that I run into, is that God allowed this for that particular people at that particular time, um, for whatever non specified reason. But it it would be bad for us today. But we're somehow more evolved than them, and it, it, it it's just the way it had to be at that time. So I would I would want to start there and say, do you do you take that position? And if you do, please tell me what was so different about them well, at that time that that made that okay. The, okay, um, my view is that um, okay. I want let's zero in on slavery um, because you know I do know quite a bit about this particular issue. Okay. Um, I think that the Bible does not present slavery as an ideal, okay? Let's uh, say that off the bat. Uh, The Bible does not glorify slavery. It doesn't say that it is something that should be pursued as a good, but recognizes that it exists. And so, you know, it does its best to put regulations on the institution of slavery. So that's one thing. The second thing is that we need to define what slavery is. Um, Unfortunately, because of the history of North America, we have a tendency to think of slavery in terms of what happened to, you know, African Americans who were brought here by the Europeans. Now, I don't know how much you know about, you know, the way slavery functioned in the ancient Near East or in classical antiquity, but... That was not the kind of slavery that they practiced. Well, let me in just fact, answer that quickly. I, I know as much about that as what the Bible says. So okay. So so um, there are certain key differences between what the Old Testament calls slavery and what was practiced in the 18th and 19th century as slavery. For example, kidnapping was not allowed. So most of the African-Americans who were brought to North America were brought in as, you know, people who were kidnapped and sold. Uh, But in Exodus, I don't remember the exact chapter, but in Exodus it says that if someone kidnaps a person and sells them, uh, the kidnapper must be put to death. So right off the bat, the very means by which uh, most slaves are procured in you know the relatively recent context uh, that we know of is condemned in the Bible. Okay, so would you consider um, kidnapping when they take uh, slaves as an act of war booting? Is how um, is that is that different from kidnapping to you? How do you how do you separate that out in your mind? As 
far as I can remember, um, as far as I can remember, the I don't remember the exact passage of the Bible that is relevant to that, but I think that would be covered under it. I don't. I don't know um, what you mean. They they were able to take people uh, from war when they weren't commanded to just kill everybody. So I'm I'm just trying to. Given it, perhaps if you give like the specific anecdote that you have in mind, we can go into the details of it. Okay. Well, because there, it's there's there's the um, mention in Numbers 31. I didn't come prepared to talk about this, but there's the mention in Numbers. I want to say Numbers 31, where uh, God commanded. Uh, everyone to be put to death except for the uh, girls too young to have had sex with a man. Those you can take uh, for yourselves and you give specific instructions on how to kind of make them your slave wives. Um, and that's, that's okay, right that certainly bat, feels a lot like kidnapping to me. Right off the bat, there is no concept of a slave wife um in the bible i understand you like, may not you it, may not appreciate it, the term but that's that's no no I'm... no this is an actual fact of jewish law that as soon as you marry a slave woman uh, that wife as soon as they become a um as soon as they become a your wife they are no longer your slave right i get like, that but you you, fact, you got them from capturing them from killing their uh husband father brother in uh, taking them from war as a prize in fact they were specifically mentioned as a prize so you don't have to call them a slave wife if you want but they are wives as a result uh of taking them as a slave as war as war booty so uh, once again you can use whatever word makes you sleep well at night um i go with slave wives myself because that puts it in a sharp relief but i understand that technically there that may not be the uh yeah. correct term yeah, because yeah, strictly speaking, um, the way slavery is defined in um, Jewish law, um, they're not considered slaves. Okay, but they were still kidnapped. And once again, I'm trying to understand how you distinguish taking, yeah. sl taking people as war prizes and distinguishing that from kidnapping. You know, that's a good question. Um, I will have to get back to you on that at a later point. Okay. But I know that um, this is generally treated as a different header from slavery. That's fine. If you want to, if you want to write something up, I will be glad to post it on yeah. the blog as a, as a, sure. you know, an initial post. So we can, because once again, we didn't come prepared to discuss the subject per se. Um, but you, you mentioned, so you were. It seems like you were. About to, to say, well, you know, there's some you know, huge differences between the chattel slavery of that time and the chattel slavery of our time. By the way, it's all chattel slavery. Chattel uh, just means property. And okay, uh, so I, I don't tell me tell me some other distinction that you think okay. there was. Um, okay, so I've, let, let's let's try this. Um, what sorts of professions? get uh placed under the heading of slavery in a, you know an ancient context like if let's say you're a millionaire and you had a butler would mm -hmm. you consider your butler a slave uh depends on how you got him but no but if okay. if what if what you're saying is there mm -hmm. there were slaves who had high positions at that time there were yeah. slaves who had high positions in the south so i'm yeah. i'm not i'm not sure that that's a difference either 
maybe we can yeah. find a difference between the two kinds of slavery. Be- because because I know quite a bit very... about slavery in the South. Okay. So because maybe we can combine is... our knowledge here. Okay, because slavery is a very broad term in ancient Near Eastern context, and even in the classical, the context of classical antiquity, um, like it's almost used at certain points as just a synonym for, you know, an employee. Except it uh, wasn't. I'm sorry. Except yeah. except it wasn't. Uh, no, so it's, I think it's I think fact, like no no the person... that's that's an equivocation. It's in fact. There are I I will grant that there are times when it's translated uh, pretty sloppily, but the Bible itself in Leviticus uh, twenty five makes a very clear distinction here, and so uh, this is one of the things that I hear Christians do a lot is pretend like oh the Bible doesn't make a distinction yeah. between slave and employee. Yes, it does. I'm prepared to read actually, it if we need to. It, the, and it let, actually, let give us full answer, and then you can okay, okay. Um, is the is in your mind are is a slave and a servant the same thing or are they different uh, they are different things depending on the context once again okay. we, can, we can use language in a very sloppy way are uh, you aware of the fact that in uh, hebrew there's only one word for both uh no i'm not aware of that but i know that there okay. is a but i know that there is a distinction uh, okay. In in the meaning, so it doesn't it doesn't really matter whether you say there's okay. one word for love. We have different we have different meanings that we pour into the word, and so yeah. love you know love can mean a number of things, just like slave yeah. can mean a number of things. I'm not well, because because okay in Hebrew there's a word eved, and then in Greek there's a word doulos, yes. and those words have a much wider range of meaning than. Uh, our word for slave, because those words can encompass slave, servant, butler, maid, um, all of those um, types of professions. Yes, I, under- I understand that. I, I grant you all of that. But but what I'm not letting you do is muddy the water and say so. The Bible is never clear when it makes when it talks about it, because that's not true. Well, I'm not saying it's not clear. I'm just saying that uh, it's a little bit more complicated than you know just saying oh. They practiced 19th okay. century Okay, well, it's style. simpler than that. So let me let me read then and, and simplify it, um, because there there are texts that we can look at, and uh, they're pretty straightforward. If your brother uh, becomes uh, impoverished with regard to you, this is Leviticus uh, 25, and I'm just starting at verse yeah. 39. So pretty pretty okay. common text. I know you know it, but a, a lot yeah. of uh, a lot of people yeah. listening don't don't know the Bible very well. So let's let's just give it to them. If your brother becomes uh, impoverished with regard to you so that he sells himself to you, you must not subject him to uh, slave service. Okay, this is talking about a Hebrew by a Hebrew. This is uh, Leviticus 25, uh, beginning at 39. Um, And uh, admittedly, this is a very uh, English translation here uh, to to make things clear. But I find it it true to the text, so you can tell me if you want to object later. Um, You must not subject him uh, to slave service. He must be with you as a hired worker, as a resident... uh, foreigner he must serve with you until the year of jubilee but then he may go free and uh, he and his children with him uh, and may return to his family and to the property of his ancestry since uh, they are my servants whom i brought out 
from the land of Egypt. They yeah. must not be sold as slaves, uh, as a slave sale. You must not rule over him harshly, but you must fear God. I'm going to finish this next text because this is uh-huh. important, and this is where apologists usually stop at that passage, and they say, you see, slavery is just servanthood, but they're not being honest with the text. Verse 44, as for your male and female uh, slaves who may belong to you, you may buy male and female slaves from the nations all around you. Also, you may buy slaves from the children of the foreigners who reside with you and from their families and uh, that are with you, whom they have fathered uh, in your land. They may become your property, chattel. You may give them as inheritance to your children after you, uh, after you to possess as property. You may enslave them perpetually. However, as for your brothers, uh, the Israelites, No man shall rule over his brother harshly. This is a clear distinction between what they mean by slave and slave. And it's funny that when Christians start talking about, well, you know, slavery in the Bible is different from ours, they stop reading at verse 44. Would you like to comment on verse 44 and and beyond? Okay. Um, Right. So as for the male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male slaves from the nations that are around about you. Um, I, I would say that a lot of the, uh, regulations still apply there. Like you're not supposed to, um, basically make life hard for them. Wrong. And you're supposed uh, I'm to. I'm sorry, wrong. Fairly. Where are you getting, well, where are you getting that from? Well, but, but he's uh, saying things that aren't, that aren't, are direct opposite from the text. Your brothers, your Jews, you're not supposed it, to treat harshly, right? Wait, wait is it your contention that... Jew, the Jews were allowed to treat Gentile slaves harshly. I'm, I, it is my contention that this passage makes a clear distinction. You can't treat your brothers harshly, but you can treat these other people like slaves. In fact, you can't treat your brothers as slaves, but as employees. So, you know, slavery for the Jew is, yes, I agree, like a bad job. Slavery for the far, foreigner was slavery. Okay. But that is my contention. The way you're saying it. It's implying that they were allowed to uh, treat the Gentile slaves harshly. Just reading the words in the book. Okay, but where do you get from the text where, that it says that you are you can basically abuse Be- them or treat because, them harshly? Well, I didn't say abuse, but I I am making a distinction between a uh, job with your fellow man and an actual slave who gets treated like a slave. Yeah. Yeah, now but you don't word, seem to be wanting to make that distinction, and I understand no, why you would be uncomfortable with that. The but word, this is the book. The, the same word is used for both. They're both considered avadim. I don't care what the word is. I have just read you what the Bible describes as the meaning behind it. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah but my point still question. stands that they are allowed. They are supposed to be treated fairly. Okay, well, I, I appreciate your point, but my point is there's no difference between that chattel slavery and the chattel slavery of the South. And, okay, and, you, and you started this off trying to suggest that there was a difference as if one was the good slavery and one was the bad slavery. And I am trying to suggest, I'm making the case that that is not true. That is not a faithful reading of the text. We have a text in front of us. If you'd like to put another text that might compete with this, I'd be happy to look at it and read it and go through it with you. Right. Um, also, as far as resources go, have you ever read Paul Copan? Uh, uh, I've listened to Paul Copan. I haven't read okay. Paul Copan. 
Okay. Well, the well, his talks will give you the Sparknotes version of what the books contain. The books go into more detail, including like you know, uh, Old Testament backgrounds and the meaning of the Hebrew text. Gotcha. Um, but okay. you got a basic idea of what Copan says then. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is, are, are you saying that you are echoing Paul Copan and you, you, you kind of punt on your own conclusion? So <laughs> I, I have the, I'm able to confirm, I, I have other resources at my disposal. So I'm able to confirm, uh, the things that he says in his book. Okay. Good. Yeah. I know you're trying to, to come in and I'm, I'm just trying to, yeah, I, I think we've, we both stated our positions on that. There are good, good resources. That's cool. Um, one, one thing that I think I know is important as well on this yeah. topic, and this will be the last discussion topic for this question before we move on to the next one. But, um, you know, sometimes in the Bible, God uses uh, violence or, or killing people. He commands the Israelites to kill the Canaanites and that sort of thing. And, you know, the, I, I've gotten flack for defending these verses as well. But, um, yeah, I was just wondering, what, what do you make of that? Do you think God is immoral for for using violence or, or killing people to accomplish his ends? I don't know, Dale. I'd probably say more or less the same things you'd say. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, David, I'll give you one well, follow-up on that. If sure. Some, a, lot of, a lot of Christians take another option, though, uh, Lewis. And so I don't there's, – there's door number two as well, which is to say that the Bible is wrong in how it depicts the biblical violence. So, um, you know, an option would be to say, well, that's that's an error in that God was never really that violent. It was the people being violent and they were just kind of putting putting that off on God. Yeah. Uh, Another possibility is to say that, well, they were just using language that. Um, was more like a locker room jock talk. Uh, God wasn't yeah. really telling them to kill everybody, and did he, you know, but well, they were they were just well, actually, talking that way because because that's how people talked at the time. So you you've got some there, other options. There's a ring of truth to that last one. In fact, uh, the, that same book that I mentioned, Copan's "Is God a Moral Monster," mentions this. He says that uh, deliberately hyperbolic language is normal yes. in intuition context. I, I, I thought that you might appreciate that from Copen, but what I haven't yeah. had a chance to ask Paul yet, uh, hopefully we'll so, have, a, so, have a chance to have him on the show is if they were using deliberately hyperbolic language about God's violence, how do we know they weren't using deliberately hyperbolic language about the evils of all of the people around them that they had to wipe out? Now, we're just supposed to take that as literal. Those people were evil. They were so bad, they needed to be wiped out. But, of course— This we're... is why I took Middle Eastern studies. So, you know how um, the Bible accuses the pagans of sacrificing their children to Moloch by burning them in fire? Yes. We have archaeological evidence of that. We, found, we have found in various uh, sites that were— previously populated by Canaanite and Phoenician populations, uh, like charred skeletons of infants. So we know that they actually did that sort of stuff based on archaeology. Sure. But so what I would I would also wonder then, but how do we not know that when God said wipe them out, he didn't mean wipe them out? When God said um, he was going to kill the firstborn of, of every Egyptian, that seems pretty harsh. Uh, we assume that he actually did that. Uh, that that wasn't just hyperbole. 
So I don't, I don't, um, I don't really understand how we activate the Copen's hyperbole he, theory. He connects the book, the text of the book of Joshua, with similar um, documents that were written around the same time, which used similar language. Okay, so I know that my follow-up time is is used up. I just wanted to throw this in because I get this response from people a lot, and I never get a response after this. Saul was refused, was denied the right to be king because he did not literally wipe everybody out. So mm-hmm. what you're saying is God doesn't actually mean to literally wipe everyone out except when he does. Okay, well, you know, we, we what we know about the Amalekite story is that the Amalekites did go on long after that. Right, I understand that. And, and I, I understand they went. Up. I understand they went on. But what I just mentioned was a situation where God really meant wipe them out, and we yeah. had a a consequence of a person who didn't wipe oh. them out, and God punished them. Actually, here's where it's good to know the details. If you look at First Samuel chapter 15, it says that they the only things that they spared were the king and the cattle. So presumably, if you go by the literal uh, wording of of 1 Samuel 15, you would get the impression that Saul did, in fact, kill all of them, except for the cattle and the king. Right. Well, but all then, I'm saying is that God wanted him to kill all of them. He, yeah. he, but, he, took it, he took God literally, and he did it literally. But what you're saying is, well, sometimes God doesn't mean it literally. Okay. It, no, no. Follow me along with this. Okay. Because okay. this is very, it's very important to look at the details. So according to 1 Samuel 15, he killed every last man. But there were many Amalekite men who show up uh, later on, even within the same book. For example, uh, 1 Samuel uh, 27, verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids upon the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. Now why is he making raids upon the Amalekites if they were already slaughtered to the last man? And then you look at 1 Samuel chapter 30. It says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and upon Ziklag. So again, how did did they come up there? Weren't they already slaughtered the last man? Um, There are other examples of that elsewhere. um, But you get the point, right? Yes. And the the answer is, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know how to respond to that other than to say the story is very inconsistent and hard to read. I do know that when God, when the storyteller seems to want us to think God means everybody, there there are times when he seems to mean everybody. And you can say, well, but historically in other places, it looks like everybody wasn't wiped out. Well, all you're showing me is that they didn't obey God. You're not showing me that God didn't actually mean it. It doesn't say they didn't obey God because... In First Samuel 15, it clearly says that God, um, um, the only thing that Saul was punished for was the fact that he spared the king and he spared the cattle. It doesn't say because he spared other people besides that. Okay, that, that's fine. And, and all, we, we will reach a point of semi-agreement here where I can just say, I have no idea what God means by kill everybody or do this violent act if he doesn't actually mean what it says. And where the Bible gives illustration and it doesn't actually mean what it says, it's just, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to even try to read something like that. I don't, I don't understand it. So you haven't actually given me an explanation for why it would say kill everybody and then Saul is punished for not killing everybody and then everybody's not killed, but you're saying, well, it's all okay. I'm just saying, okay. Yeah, great. 
pass pass me the Lord of the Rings. I understand that. Okay. Um, again, hyperbolic language. It is an act. It, it is a thing, and it well, it is not just a biblical thing. It's a common literary device. So, if you have an issue with the Bible, um, so uh, using that sort of language, it's used everywhere else besides the Bible. But I, I, I don't have an issue with everything else because I don't, I don't, I don't care about what everything else is. It's not making claims on salvation, as far as I'm concerned. So, when the when the Bible says, just one more, one more, Dale, um, yeah. because this is important. When the Bible says things like "kill the homosexuals," don't let, uh, don't let. Um, witches uh live uh kill your uh, profligate children is that also hyperbolic language were they to um, take that and say ah oh, that's just god being god again we don't have to kill the homosexuals oh those are literal oh those okay. are oh well mishugana uh what am i <laughs> what do we do with that <laughs> so okay. um okay so i don't know how we... what do you want me to do with those passages I don't know. Just tell me, tell me why those are literal. Then, I mean, give me, give me something to work with. Um, the best we have are, you know, the the expansions on them by the rabbis. So, so we know they took something literally if they actually give you detailed instructions on how to do something. Like, um, for example, um, lying with a man is punishable by death, but um, what? constitutes lying with a man. The rabbis actually go into detail about um, what sort of things you'd have to do to activate that law. And they said, for example, that, you know, um, it, there has to be anal penetration. I'm going to start getting a little bit graphic here, but the, ra the Jewish a... rabbis believe that any sort of homosexual activity short of, of actual penetration will not activate that um, rule. And, and funny enough, they also believe that lesbians, by definition, cannot um, activate the, that rule because they are incapable of penetrating you. So, so we know from the way the rabbis interpreted that passage that they intended to apply those literally. Okay, great. So I, I think we've covered question number four. It was, a, it was a good exchange back and forth. I think there is some good things on both sides to think about. Um, but yeah, let, let's move on to question five, if, if we're all agreed. Um, pro Protestantism versus Catholicism. Um, so, so yeah, uh, Louis, you, you know, you, you mentioned in the beginning of the show that you've had a bit of a change in that regard. So, yeah, in the, in the first place, um, you know, what, I, I know in apologetic circles, you were known as the next James White at one time, and, and now you're a Catholic. You've gone the opposite route. So do you mind just sort of outlining? Yeah your journey and and what are your main reasons as to why you think Catholicism is true? Sure. Um, so I have never, okay, so I've never really accepted the tendency in some reformed circles to, uh, and this was back in my own reform days, I never accepted their tendency to lump in Catholics with, say, um, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Some Protestant apologists do that. And I find that ridiculous because um, whatever doctrinal differences Catholics and Protestants have with each other, they're not at the level of the differences that either group has with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons don't believe the Trinity. Um, Mormons don't even believe in monotheism. They believe in a million gods. Um, to Catholics, be fair, Protestants, Catholics pray to and, Mary. 
So yeah, but let's that, see that there is a that's part of the. Um, okay, so we have a general, we have the same view of God. We both believe in the Trinity. We have the same um, view on the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. The Catholic Church affirms that the Bible is infallible and inerrant. Um, we have the same. We also both agree that you know the death and resurrection of Christ necessary for salvation, that you're saved by grace, um, that Jesus will come again. So all the things that are considered the basics of Christianity, as outlined in, say, the Nicene Creed, are held in common by Catholics, Protestants, and Eastern Orthodox. Um, the differences are on issues that are below that in like order of importance. For example, whether or not... Um, whether or not the Bible by itself is fully sufficient as a rule of practice. So uh, Protestants have something called sola scriptura, which is the idea that uh, the Bible is sufficient all by itself. There is no infallible interpreter outside of it. Um, that tradition, while it can be helpful at times, is not, you know, is not infallible. Whereas Catholics have a notion of an infallible tradition and of a pope who is capable under certain conditions of giving infallible statements. Um, the other major difference is on justification. So, so this is where I start getting a little bit technical, but um, um, Protestants will assert that justification is by faith alone. Now, now the now it's not the people get. Uh, uh, confused on this because it's not the phrase faith alone in and of itself that's the problem it's some of the uh, implications that get bound up along with it such as the idea that justification the idea that you're made right with God is nothing more than like a legal declaration that doesn't also entail an ontological change in your status um, Catholics believe that there is an actual ontological change in status that goes along with the declaration that you're righteous um, and then, you know, below that, you have all of the other differences. Purgatory. Again, praying to Mary and the saints, that is a big thing. Um, and also the idea that, you know, the Pope is, can, is infallible and is capable of giving infallible declarations. Just the idea that he is uh, the head of the church is one of those big things that divide Catholics from every other denomination of Christianity, including the Eastern Orthodox. And, and to be clear, that's um, one of the things, it's one of the reasons why they get lumped into cults like Jehovah's Witness and um, Mormonism. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it is a big thing. It's not some yeah. minor deal that, um, you know, the Pope yeah. is the head of the church. Yeah. Here, here's one thing, though. All those cults are like later, like, things that pop up in relatively recent history, like all of those groups that you mentioned, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, uh, they only go as far back as the 1800s. Um, uh, Catholicism is ancient. Uh, in fact, you know, Protestants and Eastern Orthodox will dispute this, but uh, the Catholic claim is that this is the original church that Jesus himself founded. Right. So, no no so Protestant agrees with that. <laughs> so. Yeah. But but it, it is a fact that Protestantism didn't exist until 500 years ago. So so something cannot be a cult if it's in fact the original expression of that religion. Like if Catholicism is the original Christianity, then it by definition cannot be a Christian cult. 
Does that make sense? It, that makes sense, but it's it's a long ways from being uh, settled that it is the original Christianity. In fact, like I said, zero Protestants agree with you on that. And okay, even though but... I am not a Protestant these days, because I am an atheist, I would also not agree with you. Catholicism is not 2,000 years old. So it's it's easy to claim, to make that claim that we were the original ones. I come and, uh, from a denomination that made that claim as well. Lots of people what was your denomination? I was, I'm I was, just curious. Church, Church of Christ. A, a, oh, a very small uh, kind of denom- uh, uh, I call it yeah. a cult, frankly. So I, I think that its claim is bat uh, shift crazy. Um, yeah. That said, that's the claim. I, I can give you their justifications from the claim. It's very easy for people to justify that they were the original vision uh, that, that mm. Jesus had. And, okay. and listen, in answering uh, David, just to, to clarify the audience, so this is one of your your positive reasons, this argument from pedigree as to why you made the switch, right? Is that correct? Um, that is actually one of the major things. So gotcha. there's, one, there's one thing that Catholics and Eastern Orthodox have that Protestants don't, and it is a concept of apostolic succession. Yes. And this is the idea that each bishop, if you trace the line of like the ordination of every priest and bishop— um, you'll eventually go back to the original 12 apostles. So the original 12 apostles ordained bishops, those bishops ordained bishops, those bishops ordained b- those bishops, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go down the line and you'll you'll be able to trace that lineage all the way um, through. In fact, one of in in fact, this is one of the reasons why Catholics and Orthodox generally get along with each other better than either group gets along with Protestants, because we have that in common with each other. Um, and even on the level of what did the early church believe, there are a lot of things that were taught in the early church, uh, that would be totally, um, verboten to Protestants today. Now that's a simplification because Protestantism is a many sided phenomenon and maybe some groups will agree with them, but the vast majority of evangelical Protestants, Calvinists, etc., would not, for example, um, the idea that the Eucharist is the actual body and blood of Christ. Well, uh, leaving aside the fact that there are statements in the Bible that priests, that sound a lot like Jesus is teaching that, you, you have explicit statements as early as the beginning of the second century that affirm that. Ignatius of Antioch, who died eight one seventeen AD, affirms this in his epistles, that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, and the people who denied this were heretics. Or the idea that um, baptismal regeneration, which incidentally, uh, from what I know of the Churches of Christ, this is one of the things that set them apart from evangelicals, the idea that baptism is actually salvific. Yes. That was, that's affirmed by Catholics, and that is affirmed in the early church. Yes, uh, except we wouldn't, Martyr, we wouldn't think of it as a sacrament, but yes. <laughs> yes, but the idea that it saves goes back to the early church. Justin Martyr, AD 130, the Epistle of Barnabas around the same time period, the Shepherd of Hermes also around the same time period, um, all say that baptism is how you become born again. Okay. And, so, and So some of the major areas where Catholics and Protestants differ with each other, you look at where the early church sides on those issues, and you see they always side with the Catholics. You might get the odd exception here or there, but the general trend holds. Gotcha. So, okay. Sure. Uh, that that's 
that depends broadly on interpretation, but uh, because of time, I'll I'll let that go. Okay. <laughs> they they don't they don't side with the Catholics per se, but you can you can certainly read it that way. I would say that they side with the Church of Christ, or they side with the Baptists, or they say the, the ba- yeah. they would all say that. So also, <laughs> the phrase Catholic Church itself it just um, means universal church. I. Yes, yeah. So, so, so this is a minor point, but the actual phrase Catholic Church is extremely ancient. It goes back to Ignatius in the second century. Now, Protestant, I know what the Protestants say. Yeah, it doesn't say. go back to Paul. It doesn't go back to Peter. It doesn't go back no, to no. Jesus. No, no. What they so. will say is, they, they will say that we are Catholic in a small C sense. So they will try to have a different definition of the word Catholic um, and say that by the early church's definition of Catholic, Protestants are Catholic, but... Um, the answer to that one is if you actually go into the detail of what they considered, you know, the Catholic faith in the early church, um, it's not this broad idea of, you know, various denominations all being united together in the common faith, because all these Christians also believed in the idea that there was only one true church. Well, so right. in the it, early did, church, it didn't mean ecumenical. So I, yeah. Right. So, so ecumenism in the way we understand it today did not exist in the early church. The early church believed that there was only one church, uh, and you cannot separate yourself from that church because as soon as you separate yourself from that church, um, you know you're no longer following Jesus. I absolutely agree uh, with that. I, so, <laughs> I I buy your interpretation of that, <laughs> Dale. You're trying to cut in. <laughs> uh, okay, sure. So, so yeah, I was, I was saying, okay, so great. That's um, and, and did you mention some of the other reasons? Like, I know um, in the sources for the audience, I've included a blog article where Lewis uh, sort of outlines his reasons um, as to the change, and I think there's well, about four of them there. So, for, if you for the sake out- for the sake of time, I'd like to throw in my question, so maybe he can fold that into his reasons, if you don't mind, Lewis, sure. uh, because mm-hmm. it would be a shame to for this to go undiscussed. Yeah, I think this it, is it, it has to do with um, this idea of ecumen ecumenism. Ecumenism. There you go, ecumenism. <laughs> um, so, on the Catholic side, generally, Catholics say, uh, Protestants, yes, okay, you're also Christians, you're going to end up in heaven some, somehow. Uh, Christians, depends. A lot of Christians, especially the more conservatives, would say, no, Catholics, not Christians. Mm-hmm. You, Lewis, are, are yeah. Protestants, never mind whether they're right or wrong, I don't care about that. Are they, in their current form... Christians on their way to heaven when they die. Um, we would we would grant them the title of Christian. Um, I don't. As a general rule, Catholics do not say Protestants are not Christian. Maybe there's like one or two exceptions here or there, but as a general rule, we'll grant them the title of Christian. As to whether or not they are um, going to heaven or not, that point is a matter of debate. I think that. Um, well, what is it from your may? perspective? I am agnostic on that. I will neither affirm nor deny that Dale or any other Protestant is going to hell. So if you, you think it is possible, though? You think it it's is possible. 50, maybe 50-50, they go to heaven, they go to hell because they're in the wrong church. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, 50, I don't know. I don't want to put a statistic well, on right. that. No, I'm, I'm, just, just gonna, I'm, not, I'm not trying but, to pin you down to statistics. I'm just trying to understand okay. your answer. You think that it is possible that because yeah. people are in the wrong church, 
or, or the wrong branch of Christianity, they will end up in hell. Is that a yes? Uh, yes. For you. Okay. There is, there's one qualifier add to that. So, um, in Catholicism, um, your level of cultability depends on how much, you know, so let's say no, let's say a certain, um, Protestant has never actually taken the time to investigate this question. They never taken the time to, um, actually figure out what Catholics believe. They've, maybe they live in a country where there are no Catholics. Everyone is a Protestant. Okay. That person is less uh, liable than someone who say, you know, let's say you were previously Catholic and you left that. That sort of person has no excuse. So um, I'm going to quote the exact wording of uh, Lumen Gentium, because there's an actual document that explains the Catholic viewpoint on this. This will just take a second. Okay. So so this is from Lumen Gentium, which was um, a document from Vatican II, 1965. It says this, and I'll quote, Basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. The one Christ is the mediator in the way of salvation. He is present to us in his body, which is the church. He himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism, and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the church which men enter through baptism as for the door. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. And then it goes on to say, but those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and, moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those two may achieve eternal salvation. So there is a certain level of, you know, how much you know about uh, Christianity or Catholicism determines uh, how much you're accountable for. Well, it seems to me that the worst thing you could do to a person then is to try to teach them. Because if they if they are born in a different tradition and you think that they are in a saved condition where they are, because, you know, in my church we would have called it uh, getting a ride on a baby ticket. If they've got the baby ticket, why take it away from them? Well, first of all, we don't... First of all, we don't actually know who specifically these passages apply to. So just because the abstract idea of the possibility of a non-Catholic getting saved exists, doesn't mean we're allowed to just take it for granted that any given uh, person who is non-Catholic is going to get to heaven. So it's like, so so the, the way Catholics, you know, at least Catholics who take their faith seriously go about it is, Maybe you'll get to heaven, but I'm not taking any chances. Wow. Okay. Awesome. All right. Perfect. Yeah, I, I think that uh, covers all of our questions um, for this week. I, I hope uh, it's been a good time. Hopefully you enjoyed your time on the show, Lewis. Yeah. Okay. And uh, awesome. Um, yeah, I guess we'll just leave it to, to Lewis uh, if you have any final closing remarks, remarks to leave and then yeah. we'll close out the show. Um, and, and also you know tell what? us where we can find you on the internet. Tell uh, people how to get in touch sure. with you, get uh, hook up with your projects, whatever you happen to be doing. Yeah. So, e, so com is my blog. So you can, uh, um, you know, you can check 
the articles I've written there. And unfortunately, it's been a while since I've updated it. Uh, I really need to add new content there, but Lord willing, I'll do that soon. Um, if anyone wants to get a hold of me, um, you can get a hold of me through my University of Toronto email address, which is Lewis, L-U-I-S dot D-I-Z-O-N, D-I-Z-O-N at mail.utoronto.ca. Um, and I'm more than happy to field questions uh, by email. And also, my main um, thing that I like to do is to suggest resources. So rather than tell you what I think, I will tell you uh, what experts in a certain field think, and I will recommend direct the um, relevant uh, scholarly material for any given topic. Okay, and we have a lively group uh, at uh, skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com, uh, mm-hmm. so we'll put up the blog post. I always write a blog uh, about uh, these uh, casts. You are, you are welcome to write a response to my blog post when I put it up be sometime later today. And uh, we've got, like I said, we've got a lively group in the discussion board. If you want to stop by, uh, I'll send you a link. You can come by and interact with the um, with the animals. But I mean, the Posters. Watch out for a guy named Darren if you the see him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, well, that nice. sounds like fun. Yes, it is fun. <laughs> Darren, one of the smartest people in our blogs. <laughs> this is a, this is uh, all inside stuff. Darren is uh, the bane of Dale's existence, and therefore I love Darren. Uh, keep up the good work, Darren. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, all of you guys there, Darren, uh, Ryan, Plato, Byrne, um, Joyce, uh, come come on by. Uh, and uh, send send Lewis on your questions. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks again, Lewis, for for doing me the favor of coming on our show. And hopefully, the the audience enjoyed this. And yeah, have a good week, everybody. Oh, um, you know, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And hope you all have a good weekend as well. All right. Bye bye, everybody. <laughs>